The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, UEFA had some draws and we took them down. Here are our thoughts on the Champions League Lost 16 and Europa League playoffs. Elsewhere, Bundesliga Bayern back on top and Germany's next breakout star in Ligue 1, the GOAT and the Leg of Lamb. Ajax PSV, are Juve back part 67 and Piccoli Maldini Crescono plus the Shakhtar story. It's a bumper Totally Football Show. Tuesday the 8th of November, everybody. Hello, Alvaro Romeo. Hola. Hola, James Horncastle. Hola. Hola, James. Hola, <laughs> Julien Laurent. Uh, Hola, amigo. Amigos. Buenos. Eh, ¿Quién es eso en la cama? <laughs> pues es Rafael Honigstein. <laughs> Rafael Honigstein, everybody, is in bed. Rafa, explain yourself. It's uh, 3 a.m. Where I, where I am, James, in Missouri. I'm in St. Louis to look at a football team that's being set up here for next season. A um, European football team. I mean, soccer. A European soccer team? Yeah. What? In Missouri? They will play European football, as it were. That's what I meant. Okay. Have they decided which league in yet? MLS. Oh, I see. So it'll be a Europe team in MLS. No, as in the football, the European version of football. Football is not American football, but the European <laughs> version of football. So That's football. a great start. I mean, it's 3 a.m. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Hit the mini bar, Raf. Yeah. <laughs> because that would have been really exciting if there was going to be like a, say, a Serie A representative club in MLS or Liga or Liga anyway or a, a Serie A team in NFL that's, Ooh. that's you know could happen even better yeah yeah we've got lots to talk about I want to hear your thoughts on the draws the ones you know for the cups but of course we begin with a moment of the weekend mine's already seeing Rafa in bed there you look so cozy Rafa but what about yours Alvaro off you go well, there is a very clear moment of the week for me, which is uh, what happened at uh, Rayo Vallecano ground, uh, because Rayo beat Real Madrid on Monday. Atención a Trejo, toma carrera Trejo, pierna derecha, gol. Ahora sí marcó Trejo, gol, 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 del Rayo Vallecano. They are a small team with a small ground, even, uh, I don't know if you saw, that image of Fede Valverde hitting the ball outside of the ground and literally putting it uh, in a balcony next to a Estadio de Vallecas. Yeah, I think this, this is that what, balcony took it. This is about five or six stories up and he, he doesn't just hit it out of the ground, but it goes straight up, straight into this guy's living room. Extraordinary. Yeah, a Christmas gift for if the, any child lives there. I think that he's got a new football. And, you know, probably a new chandelier as well. <laughs> could be as well yeah. a broken glass but you know I think that this is the moment of the week because Rayo Vallecano not only won but they did win in style as well and they've got a handful of phenomenal footballers especially midfielders Trejo Isi Palazón even Falcao doesn't play 90 minutes because he's not needed and you know them beating Real Madrid is definitely the moment of the week in Spain beautiful Jules it's another tough day for our friend Paulo Fonseca. James, remember last week we said how frustrated he was after the defeat at Lyon 1-0 when his team played so well. Well, they played even better against Rennes, another top four candidates this weekend, and they only drew 1-1. Rennes had one shot on target. It was a penalty. And Lille was so good, so, so good. It was just nice to see they could not win again. So I, f I feel for Paulo Fonseca right now. Yeah, sometimes you just come up against another, a better manager, and he was facing Pep Genesio. 15 games unbeaten. It was incredible, Pep Genesio, although even Pep Genesio himself said how, how lucky his team his team was really in that game against Lille. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's how you, you, know, you recognise good managers as well, like Pep Genesio, is that they know when to praise your position and, mm. you know, and keep a low profile because Ryan didn't, didn't deserve a point at all. OK. James? I think one of the public services that we provide on the Totally Football Show, James, is to tell our listeners about players that they've never heard of. So remember the name, Maldini. Uh, mm. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy before, but um, Daniel Maldini, 21-year-old, 
scoring for Spezia against AC Milan at San Siro. Um, yeah, I don't know what the significance of that is. Um, you know, just what a, what a day for him to do it. Uh, of course, his, his father was in the stands, Paolo, sporting director of AC Milan. And ultimately, it was the perfect day for Paolo, uh, not only because the dynastic line uh, continues. Uh, I mean, Daniel had already scored in Serie A last season, funnily enough, against the club he's now playing for, Spezia. But um, he got to see his son score and mm. Milan still won anyway. Uh, nice moment for the uh, sentimentalists, the nostalgists. Uh, but yeah, remember the name. Maldini. Maldini. Paolo in the stands. It was Paolo's father, Cesare, who was the, the last Maldini to score against Milan. That was when he finished off his career at Torino. Uh, that, that goal back in 1967. Crikey. I noticed that Maldini is an anagram of Milan ID or also Deep Milan. Interesting that. What does it mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Raphael, stay with us. I'm here. Good morning. Good morning. Your moment of the weekend, sir. Moment of the weekend was in Dortmund, James. Why are you laughing, James Horncastle? Because you always do this. You always say, my moment of the weekend. It's like, yeah, we know. Just to remind listeners what we're talking about, I'd like to just point that out. Anyway, my moment of the weekend, James. What is your moment of the weekend, Rafa? My moment of the weekend <laughs> happened in Dortmund, where Yusufa Mukoko scored two fine goals, but the first one to really give Dortmund um, a nice way into this game against Falfel Bochum. But the wider meaning of this goal and then the second was that I think, I think those two goals might have sealed Mukoko's place in the Germany World Cup squad. Is he going to be the breakout star in Qatar, Rafa? Yeah, he's got a good chance. Uh, along with Jamal Musiala, who's perhaps slightly more familiar um, to a wider audience, but I think those two might, yeah, might be really important for Germany. We'll have to wait till Thursday. But it would be a huge surprise if he doesn't make the squad. And for a 17-year-old striker to be involved for Germany and perhaps even start or at least get significant game time is, uh, is quite a development. Um, and it felt like, a, felt like a momentous occasion, him doing so well, just when he needed it most, perhaps. Magnificent. All right, much more to come from all the big leagues. Next up, Let's get your thoughts on the draws. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The draws very exciting. Monday, a series of uh, earn-based activities which led to big teams being matched with, in many cases, other big teams. In the Champions League, Liverpool got Real Madrid. That's last year's final again. Also got a rematch of the 2020 final as PSG take on Bayern. Milan are up against Spurs. Inter get Porto. Eintracht Frankfurt face Napoli. Leipzig have Manchester City Bruiser up against Benfica and Dortmund have Chelsea. All right. Alvaro. Real Madrid-Liverpool, the Champions League final in 2022. And I think that this is the, the game that stands out really, maybe not for Rafael and for Jules, but for me it really does because I think that... Um, this is a game between two sides with plenty of history. They've won the, the Champions League repeatedly, Real Madrid more times, obviously. But uh, I don't think that there are clear favourites in this kind of games, and especially this Liverpool, who is capable of um, inflicting pain to anyone, especially in short tournaments. I would say last season they reached three finals. This season they are not going to win the league, but I wouldn't be surprised if they lift a trophy or two. I think that this Liverpool is capable of uh, being competitive against Real Madrid. I don't think that anyone at Real Madrid uh, considers the form of Liverpool in the league as a reason to be calm about the, the tie. In, at Madrid, they know exactly uh, the kind of uh, danger that Liverpool entails. And yes, this is very interesting. And Liverpool, we have to say that maybe they are doing bad in the league, but they have beaten in the last month the likes of Napoli the likes of Manchester City, the likes of Tottenham, the likes of Ajax. So the dangerosity is there. Maybe not every day, but I think that in the short tournaments they are going to be very, very dangerous. 
Mm. Colin Miller pointing out that since Jurgen Klopp took over at Liverpool, they've only ever been knocked out of the Champions League by clubs from Madrid. Dun, dun, dun. All right, PSG and Bayern, have they faced each other much recently? Any big games, Jules? Uh, yeah, I remember three 0 defeat at the Parc des Princes for Bayern. Carlo Ancelotti was sacked the next day, uh, and a famous three-two win away in Munich under the snow as well, with no fans in the stand. That's pretty much all I can remember. <laughs> Wait, I mean, there's so much history here. Is this time going to be different for you, Jules? I don't think so. As as you all know, <laughs> Bayern are my favorite to win the whole competition. I think this is the worst draw for PSG, really, even worse than than some of the other big clubs that were in Pot One. Because I think the way Bayern play just doesn't suit completely at all the way PSG defend or the lack of defending in the sense that PSG defend with seven players or eight players if you count Donnarumma, of course. Uh, and I just think that Bayern will have too much, will overload them too much, will overrun them everywhere for PSG to be able to, to cope. So I think PSG will score. I think it's a high scoring game, with two games. But eventually in the end, I think Bayern will be too strong. I even think this is a a better Bayern defence than the ones that PSG faced before. And yet, Messi and Neymar right now are in the form of their lives. No one can tell me right now and can guarantee me that comes February, end of February or mid-February, because it's on Valentine's Day, the, the first leg in Paris, that they will be at the same level once the World Cup has gone and one of them has won it and the other one has lost it. So You can't even guarantee they'll see. be at the same club, Jules. Yeah, yeah, well, I can... More guarantee that than the form that they will have because I, okay. I don't think PSG will let any of their, of their front three go in January anyway. Okay. They might recruit and strengthen and go for a screener, for example. I don't know, you know, someone who, a position that they wanted to strengthen before, but the front three will still be there. I just don't know in what kind of mindset and what kind of form. All right, Rafa? Yeah, I mean, I hope that Jules is right, really, with this analysis. Uh, I'm, I'm really rooting for you, Jules, in this respect. Um, Thank you. Thank what's you. interesting, I think, from a buying point of view is obviously they're not happy with the draw and they didn't pretend they were. They said, oh, we, uh, we weren't rewarded for what we did in the group stage, was Julian Nagelsmann's comment. So it's not as if it's the dream draw for Bayern. But it's funny because one of the reasons why Bayern got knocked out in the uh, quarterfinals in 2021, yeah, was because um, Lewandowski wasn't there and they had this guy, Eric Maxim Chupomoting, instead up front. And now, a couple years later, they're thinking, maybe we're going through because we don't have Lewandowski, but we have Eric Maxim Chupomoting up front who doesn't stop scoring and makes this team work all of a sudden, work in the sense that they function better. So this is a, a development, I think, that nobody could have foresee, foreseen. But he scored yet again this week, uh, two goals. Um, they were so get Müller esque in in the way that they were scored that uh, I think people sort of love them, love him even more for it. Uh, especially the second one. I think the secret for Bayern would be whether they can keep their rhythm and their form because we had a situation last year where in the first half of the season they played some of the best football they have played in recent years under Julian Nagelsmann. It was a top level. And for whatever reason, after the winter break, their rhythm was lost. They started drawing games, they started losing games, and they could never quite find that momentum again. And we just don't know what kind of form Bayern will be in in February and then March. So I agree with Jules in the sense that Bayern might overwhelm PSG, but we need to see that same kind of urgency that we're seeing at the moment and that's not a given yeah absolutely could be a lot of changes between now and february in terms of personnel in terms of form jules no just quickly the the uh, the form on the back of the world cup is interesting for for everybody of course and with the players and stuff like that but germany are the only country with a with a winter break everybody was going to come back and play boxing day new year's day new year's eve and get the season get the season going against pretty much straight after the World Cup. Germany would be the only one to have a, like a month off because I think then they start again and 20th of Jan or 21st of Jan, roughly something like that. And I don't know, for me, you could look at it and say, okay, this is this is much better than PSG, for example, who will will go straight back into the league and no break, nothing, and then a lot of games until that game against Bayern. But what Rafa said about sometimes Bayern not dealing well with winter breaks, and we've seen that in the past before where actually... It took them a bit of time after their winter break on in normal seasons to get back to their best. 
So maybe, and I'm really hoping that this is the, the same again and they, they struggle after the winter break because they will only have three weeks after the winter break before they face PSG when PSG would have played since pretty much the end of the World Cup. A very interesting point. James, how did the Italians feel about their, uh, their partners? Uh, Milan have got Spurs, uh, Inter up against Porto and Napoli drawing Eintracht Frankfurt. I think Inter look at uh, the Porto game as a trap game. Um, because Porto are the Serie A slayers. Um, yeah, they knocked out Juventus, uh, they knocked out Roma, and you know Simone Inzaghi and Sergio Conceição go way back. Um, they used to be teammates at uh, Lazio, and they're just a notorious difficult team, unless you're called Liverpool, who you know, like to go to the Dragon and win 5-0. Um, so, you know, as much as Inter have made progress in Europe over the last uh, couple of years under Inzaghi, uh, in that they've qualified for the knockouts for back-to-back seasons for the first time since Jose Mourinho was uh, was the coach. Um, it's one that I think they need to be careful of uh, in that game. You know, as for Napoli, I think they feel they were rewarded uh, for winning that difficult group with with Liverpool Ajax. Um, that's no disrespect to Eintracht Frankfurt. Yeah, I think they know that it's one of the great European away days um, and you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, when that kind of Frankfurt uh, fan base descends on Naples uh, as well. Um, but uh, yeah, they fear nobody at the moment because yeah, even looking beyond their results in the Champions League um, of being yeah, three or four nil up uh, against Liverpool, against Ajax, you look at how well they've played away from home in Serie A, uh, where they've already beaten the champions Milan at San Siro, uh, they've beaten Atalanta, and uh, they've beaten Roma. Um, you know, those are things that bode well. You do wonder with Napoli, and this applies to Serie A as well, whether the World Cup break will disrupt their rhythm, um, whether this magic moment uh, will kind of be forgotten about, and the players take it a little bit easy over the next. Uh, five, six weeks. Um, yeah, I, I wonder what will happen if they were to drop points in their first game back in City A. Would that kind of be psychologically pressurising uh, for them? Uh, and then Milan, I think, yeah, Milan, I think it's an open, open game against Spurs. Uh, obviously, a tie that brings back memories of, of 2011, Gattuso squaring off with Joe Jordan, mm. Crouchy. But uh, I think I've said this before, Milan feel they've not shown their true level in this competition so far that there's more to come from them um, that um, Leal for example hasn't scored uh, if I'm not mistaken in, 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 in either group stage uh, the last couple of seasons and yeah, he's the City Art MVP um, and you know I think just getting out of the group stage mentally is really important uh, for the club to do it in the first time in nine years it takes the load off takes the pressure off and we'll have to see what state Spurs are in uh, because <laughs> it's been pretty pretty interesting watching them mm. over the last few weeks. Certainly has. Napoli's opponent, Eintracht Frankfurt, Rafa. We had Marlon Tesla writing in after, not spelt like that, uh, but writing in after our last show when we were talking about the, who got through from Champions League final group stage match day. He says, I can't believe how little love you gave to Frankfurt. First time in the Champions League, they had to win away at Sporting, who'd beaten them on the home game. Came back from 1-0 down to win and make it through. Come on, guys, give some love. Rafa, Eintracht Frankfurt, love. I think it's a fair point and they should deserve our accolades and our our love for what they did. Uh, admittedly, in a, in a group that was perhaps more meanable than others, but you still had to perform uh, in very hostile environments and what's amazing about Frankfurt is that they seem to always be at their best when it's a final you know it's it's a big game they have to win they have to do something they seem to deal with the pressure so well and if you think about the results in recent months there is an argument to say that in European football on the whole there's only them and Real Madrid that have delivered so consistently for 18 months now and I think that is is quite an achievement for for a club of that size and um, I think it's a draw that they will relish I think the stadium vibes at both places will be amazing uh, in the cities as well and 
I don't think it should face them because if you can beat Barcelona, if you can beat big teams in the Bundesliga, if you can get results at places like uh, like Sporting and Marseille, then why not? Why not? Why not? Why not do it against Napoli? It's an amazing sort of dreamlike existence, which might continue for a little bit longer. It's got vibes of the, the, the Frankfurt-Barcelona game from last season where, you know, everybody's looked at it, even Barcelona saying like, oh, this is, you know, this is a good draw. We can't really fear them. They, they're great. They've gone that far and it's amazing. And they went there with no pressure. I don't, I still don't think they're going to beat Napoli. And I think Napoli would be wary because of what happened to Barcelona last season. But, but still, I think there's, there's a little similarities between the two. What I found amazing is that in the sporting game, uh, you'll all remember from watching on the goal show, there were about 9,000 empty seats. And they were so afraid, Sporting, that the scenes from Barcelona would repeat themselves where you had 30,000 or maybe more Frankfurt fans making it almost a home game that they restricted the sale of the tickets to members. And that meant that a lot of seats just stayed empty. Frankfurt only had 2,500. And... I think this is probably the only occasion where a supporter group or a, you know a fan group has had an impact on a game which they weren't actually at because Sporting could have done with a better atmosphere and with those extra 8,000 people, especially behind the goals. But they were so afraid that Frankfurt fans might be there that they'd rather left them empty. So again, I think that just kind of sums up this strong unity that they have between the fans, the club, the supporters. It is quite special what they've been able to create there. Lovely stuff. Let's just pull one out of the Europa League draw for now and then we'll move on. This is the playoff round, of course, as the the teams dropping down from the Champions League group stages, third-place sides, take on the second-place teams in the Europa League groups and there's one game, Alvaro, that caught everyone's attention, eh? Sporting Michelin? That's the one. <laughs> and I've got nothing to say about that one, unfortunately. I haven't prepared Needs myself. no introduction. A Barca <laughs> Man United, on the other hand, Alvaro. Yes. I mean, this is uh, probably the, the draw that uh, Xavi uh, would have hated most if you ask him on Sunday who or which is the side you don't want to play against. Probably he would have said this. Uh, he admitted that in the press conference that it was a very difficult uh, draw. At the same time, if you come third of the Champions League and uh, the likes of Manchester United are over there, or Roma, for example, but especially Manchester United, you have to expect as well that you can play against sides like this. Look, I think Barcelona has shown so many different uh, layers and so many different levels of excellence from good one to rock bottom, basically, that I don't know what to expect from them in February, really. I don't even know if in the transfer market they'll try to do something in January. Uh, unlikely, but you never know because Matteo Alemani, the sporting director, always finds ways to offload some players uh, and then uh, bring in some on loan as he did last season. So Barcelona could look different uh, to what they are now. Uh, they are top in the table in La Liga, but in Europe they haven't been competitive, more or less, since they beat Manchester United in 2019. Uh, and then they lost to Liverpool in the next round. And that was roughly when Barcelona's uh, series of disasters started in Europe. So maybe beating Manchester United again, it's a turning point in Barcelona's season. I'm not uh, discarding that. And uh, for Manchester United, uh, playing against Spanish sides hasn't mm. been a joy because uh, from 2017 onwards, every time Manchester United has been eliminated from Europe, has been at the hands of Spanish sides. Sevilla, twice, Villarreal. Mm, Atletico. Atletico as well. So, yeah, I think that uh, this is not yeah. going to be easy for Manchester United. Indeed not. Xavi won two Champions League finals against Man United as a Barcelona player. Of course, Cristiano Ronaldo has a bit of a record against Barca himself. So much to look forward to about that game and all of them. They'll be coming up from mid-February. As Jules says, Valentine's Day, February 14th. It all gets underway. Super. Uh, let's get on to what happened this weekend. And we're going to start with a very, very emotional day in La Liga. Hi, I'm Adam Crafton. And I'm the host of the Athletics' new documentary series, Away From Home. We've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk through the Champions League group stage. 
They've had to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first bomb, you never forget. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League odyssey. It's not only about football now, it's about to show that we are fighting. I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself, hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. They killed him here. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Alvaro, this weekend in Spain, while well, Monday night included defeat for Real Madrid, another draw for Atletico Madrid, a feisty three-red card derby in Seville, and at Barcelona, the lights going out on another bit of the football world as we know it, as Gerard Piquet hangs up his boots. Yes, he does, and uh, you know, I think that this is uh, goodbye for a great footballer, a multi-layered character, a man who probably was a pioneer in just making sure that his football career meant something for the future as well. Uh, Gerard Piquet used his contacts, he comes from a rich family by the way, but he used his contacts, his power as a footballer, just to establish his uh, little empire while he was playing, and that sometimes affected his career as well. But probably he's one of the first ones to do this, because come on, I remember that footballers in the past, most of them, uh, after they retire, they they just have to go back to to businesses, whichever they were. Uh, I remember in Bilbao we had Tel Mozarra, uh, La Liga top scorer until Messi mm-hmm. surpassed him, and he got a small sports shop next to my parents' house. So, you know, that was what footballers did before. But Gerard no, Piquet... No, it's the same uh, over here. You know, postman, some have to go and work in TV. Really, really worrying. So well done to him. But let, let's celebrate. Because <laughs> I feel like with Piquet, he, our, our vision of him has got a little bit clouded in the last in the last times because of the off-field activities, the business deals, and the fact that he he was part of a Barcelona defence which was very much their Achilles heels. But his career, what he achieved as a player, is extraordinary. Look, it's, it's incredible. I mean, for me, we... we we really have to talk about the player, the player and the and the person, the character, the public character, and the player uh, has had a lot of success. I mean, I just want to throw some numbers here. For example, when Spain won the World Cup in 2010, and then when they won the Euro in 2012, Spain didn't concede any single goal in the knockout rounds, not even in the finals, uh, for two big tournaments in a row. And Gerard Piquet was a centre-back with Sergio Ramos. They formed probably the best ever defensive partnership in Spanish football. Then he was a man whose uh, physicality could tell us that he was made to defend in the six-yard box. And I think that in Italy he would have been really well regarded, uh, Gerard Piquet, because his abilities inside the six-yard box were amazing. I mean, Barcelona had a rather short squad and there has been endless times when Gerard Piquet just was winning the headers uh, when it came to defending corners. So he's been always there. His ideal power is out of any question. But with that body he had, he was capable of playing football 40 or 50 yards away from his own goalkeeper. This is the success of Gerard Piquet. The fact that he said, you know, to his body, maybe you are making me look like in a certain way, but I'm going to play in the on the contrary, on the opposite way of what I look like. And he was a phenomenal defender. I think that uh, the best tribute to, to Gerard Piquet has been given by some players. Like, for example, Iñaki Williams, uh, who said on TV once that he had never faced a defender as quick as Gerard Piquet. So that tells you a little bit the story. Gerard Piquet was capable of beating in a race a pick Cristiano Ronaldo as well, if needed. And uh, he had the creativity to score too. Because he has scored some really, really nice goals against Real Madrid at Bernabeu, being one of them. A lovely one, uh, just beating Iker Casillas when nobody expected him to take the shot. But then, you know, the character comes as well. And he, as I said before, he's a multi-layer character. He got a sponsorship for Barcelona back on the day. He got Rakuten for Bartomeu. He also had his jiggery pokery, you call it like that, with Rubiales, the Spanish FA president. Uh, and there was obviously 
some conflict of interest between his company Cosmos uh, organizing the Super Cup and him being a footballer. But generally speaking, he has been a phenomenal footballer and I'm sure that we will hear about him again. He's going to be busy from now on, by the way, because today we got to know that Shakira and him, uh, the divorce agreement and Shakira is going to take the kids to Miami. So he's going to be a busy man with his company, with his events, organizing the Davis Cup again and obviously probably flying a lot to Miami just to see his kids. Indeed. It's funny though, Barcelona, the name lives on, but that's kind of a big piece of what we thought of as as Barcelona disappearing off the map. Were you emotional when you when you saw his video that he put out last Thursday? The club didn't know about the existence of that video. The club didn't know that Gerard Piquet was going to retire, but Gerard Piquet recorded that video at the Camp Nou. So this tells you exactly how individualist Gerard Piquet could be. Yes, he has been a player for a team. Yes, he has helped Barcelona in the past, but at the same time, he always wanted to be in control of his own destiny. And since this is the time when he was not in control of his own destiny for the first time, uh, because he wasn't playing, because he said that he was not going to play for any other side than Barcelona uh, before retirement, I think that Gerard Piquet said, look, since this is a little bit out of my control, I'm going to retire now. He was not good enough anyway anymore. So, I mean, <laughs> well done to him. And he will come back as a as a president. Maybe not the next one. That might come a bit too early, but but very very soon anyway. So it's it's not really a proper goodbye, is it? He has to be elected, though. There's no way they're not going to elect. I mean, he's a fan's favorite. Mm. He will be elected. I mean, his granddad was. Imagine when he comes back and he he sees the finances that he has to deal with. <laughs> they they sold Maybe, what? Yeah. <laughs> All the levers. What? <laughs> Uh, just quickly, I think that we we'd feel more strongly about him and his resignation or retirement if he hadn't already sort of mentally retired a couple of years ago. It felt as if his main focus was no longer on playing, but on on various business ventures, and maybe he kind of missed the boat a little bit, which is a shame when you look at his success. Wow. He did have a legendary career, more than 600 appearances, eight league titles, seven Spanish Cups, three Champions Leagues, three Club World Cups, and European title and world title with Spain. But I guess he ran out of, what's that, four? Four jewels? Four what? Four Champions League, yeah. The one with Manchester United counts. He got a medal. He was oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He won with Man United. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say... He's, probably run out of wage cuts to take because, you know, for all the shade you're throwing at him for his, his off-field activities, he took he took it in the pocket for his club to help them, you know, do their financial finagling. Anyway, I salute, and I'm sure you do too, listener, Gerard Piquet. And now his watch is over and that. Next up, hey Jules, it's League... This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. League are getting bumped up in our uh, schedule this week because, Jules, you've got somewhere to be. So let's hear it then. <laughs> First of all, your pals Lorient, Rigi Libris, giving uh, Paris Saint-Germain a run for their money this weekend. Some lovely bits of action in this game, not least the lovely, yeah. lovely Lorient goal. Yeah, it was really nice uh, at the start of the second half. They they hit the woodwork as well. They played quite well. There was a lot of win. It was a game that I think everybody within the club and around the club got really excited with because they obviously started the season so well, even if that defeat against Paris means now they haven't won in four. But still, they're still overachieving, really. And they, they showed why they played so why they've done so well this season because they played really well and PhD. I think deserved to win in the end. Neymar scored a, an early goal after a big mistake by the goalkeeper and then PSG scored a late winner on set pieces. Uh, but overall, I think PSG did, did well considering Messi wasn't there, considering they all look a bit tired and couldn't really be asked. But, but for Lorient, despite the defeat, I think he, there's a lot of promises there. 
very good. Lionel Messi rested because of inflammation in his Achilles tendon. Jules, should we be worried? I don't think so, but everybody in Argentina is right now. They were sweating when they when they heard the news, and and I think I think it's just some precaution. He didn't again didn't want to um to to take any risk, and rightly so. Uh, mm. There's there's one more home game to come on Sunday, early kickoff as well, at like twelve o'clock kickoff against Auxerre at the Parc des Princes, so in Paris, and then straight after that, he will take the private jet to go and and join up with the rest of the the Argentine squad. So it was more very much like listen. He's played a lot at his age. Let's let's not worry too much about this one. Fair enough. Okay, the big game this weekend in Ligue 1 was the Olympico. 1-0 leg of lamb. Leg of lamb. So bad. Such a terrible game. Incredible. I mean, I, I thought that the, the Rome derby was bad and it was bad. And then I thought, okay, now... Now I'm going to see something better, and mm-hmm. it wasn't. The atmosphere within the ground around the, the velodrome was amazing, of course. And for the first time in a very long time, Lyon were allowed to um, to have some of their own fans, so the away fans could travel. Uh, but then it was ter- it was a terrible game, really terrible. Leg of lamb scored on 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 set pieces. Uh, he, I mean, even he's it's not a very clear header anyway, clean header. But apart from that, there was just nothing that shows you that well, Lyon are really even with with Larry White coming in. Mm. Because the other Dutch guy did a terrible job. And then for Tudor, I guess he's better after what happened against Spurs. But it's still not great. Uh, listen, you, you pretty much need like a cast list of characters now. You've got the other Dutch guy, who's Peter Bosch. Uh, you've got uh, Larry White, who's Laurent Blanc. And who is Leg of Lamb, Jules? Yeah. It's Samuel Gigo, uh, the Marseille defender. Obviously, Gigo meaning Leg of Lamb in your language. And in yours, I think. Yeah, and in mine as well, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Good. Magnificent stuff. Anything else you want to tell us about Ligue 1 this weekend? Yeah, just Monaco doing really well. They won away at Toulouse, a 2-0. Uh, and Golovin scored a lovely, lovely goal. Brilliant Bolo again as well. They've got such a good firepower, which would be great against Bayer Leverkusen in the, in the Kevin Follen derby uh, comes February. Because I think they, they, they really are a very interesting team, this Monaco side and the Philippe Clément. They're not perfect by far. And defensively, they could be a bit shaky, but going forward, they've got so much talent. And if you all clicks at the right time, they, they can achieve great things. Jules, thank you very much for that. Jules heads off as we head next up, excitingly, to the Bundesliga. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Next up, Rafa, Bundesliga, where it's happened. Bayern are back on top. Plot twist, James. Big plot twist of the season. Nobody could see that happening. Mm. Bayern are top because Union Berlin exploded, or imploded, I should say. 5-0, they lost to Bayern 04 Leverkusen, a struggling Bayern side under Xabi Alonso and after defending so well I think they conceded 35% of all goals that they conceded in this particular game in the Bundesliga well they'd, they'd only conceded 9 in 12 matches before this but 5 they shipped in this one game Leverkusen who'd only won 3 games in the entire campaign so far coming out on top here was this the dawn of Xabi Alonso ball? I think it's a little bit too early to say that it was quite a peculiar game because in the first half, Leverkusen had no real attempts at goal. Union controlled the game really well, as they often do. They kind of choked choked any sense of um, danger. But then Leverkusen scored from a corner. Robert Andrich, of all people, the former Union midfielder, just stuck out a leg. They defended really badly. And then something really strange happened. They opened up completely and played a game that is really not their game, throwing men forward and keep having huge spaces between the lines. 
And Leverkusen, if there's one thing they can do, especially with Paris-born and bred Moussa Diaby, is to counter-attack. And they took full advantage and basically took them to the cleaners. And of course, it was a huge boost for the confidence of the team. But it felt slightly freakish um, rather than the consequence of a really strong team that plays at the top of its level. I think this was more about Union really losing their heads. Mm. And Urs Fischer mentioned this being like a slap in the face and the deserved rewards for playing kids football or youth football, he said. Uh, immature and disorganized. Everything that you don't associate with, with Union Berlin, somehow they just couldn't get it together. Uh, which was good news for Bayern because Bayern won, as we briefly hinted at earlier, and they had that 3-2 win at Hertha. They took a 3-0 lead early on and then basically managed the occasion and kind of took their eye off the ball a little bit. Hertha came back, but it never felt as if this game might swing properly. Bayern were far too dominant. And yeah, the story was that not only did Eric Maxim Chupomating score two more goals, but especially the second one was so funny and bizarre that people instantly thought about this other fairly well-known Bayern striker of the name Gerd Müller, who used to score goals all the, all the time. What he did basically, for those who haven't seen it, is he stretched to connect with the ball and sort of tried to fly into the ball with his leg, hit it, um, missed it completely with his right leg, but then through the momentum, carried him through and basically collided with his left foot and the ball and pushed the ball over the line. And <laughs> I haven't seen a goal like that in, in, in many years, but it kind of sums up the form he's in. He scores even when he misses. When you're hot, you're hot, Rafa, as you know so very well. He's now scoring every 70 minutes this season. Robert Lewandowski, remember him? He used to score a goal every 82. So Chipper Moting, a big, big upgrade on Lewandowski. Elsewhere in people who score goals in the Bundesliga news, shock for Timo Werner, who's definitely going to be out of the World Cup for Germany, assuming he was part of Hontiflick's plans. Suffering an ankle injury in Leipzig's win at Shakhtar last week in the Champions League. He's going to be out till the new year. Poor chap. Yeah, I feel very sorry for him because he was coming back into form and uh, Hansi Flick is, is one of his biggest champions, really. He gave him a lot of game time. I think a lot of people would think that he's no longer first choice in terms of performances, but under Flick, he's the most prolific scorer uh, for Germany. And I think Flick was trying everything in his power to get him ready and make sure that he would play. Maybe not as a starter all the time, but certainly as an impact player. Um, without him, it's opened the door, I think, even more for the, for the likes of Mukoko, as we, as we mentioned earlier. But also maybe Niklas Füllkrug has a better chance now. He's the closest Germany have to an old-school number nine. Mm. He scored again for Werder, uh, but will unfortunately miss Tuesday's game at Bayern. And we have midweek fixtures uh, this week. An English Because of a, a small back injury, but he won't be ruled out. But in more worrying news for both Germany and Dortmund, Marco Royce is still not fit and he will miss also the game on Tuesday at Wolfsburg and you're hoping that he will recover in time because it is a very congested area so that these attacking midfielders Germany have, have many of them and it'd be a real tragedy if he were to miss yet another big tournament. I mean, this is a guy who's been so, so unlucky with, with World Cups and Euros. Um, so fingers crossed for him. Indeed so. Union Berlin, by the way, are in the Europa League playoffs coming up mid-February. They're going to be taking on Ajax. Speaking of whom, next up, we've got a special correspondent who went to the big game in the Eredivisie uh, this weekend. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Nick Miller is on the road to Qatar. I am. Hello, James. And so is Laurie Whitwell, John the security man, and your cameraman... Martino. Martino. He's just been filming me in Cologne. We're in Cologne. Nice. That's a Cologne street I'm looking at. It is, yes. You, can, uh, you can't quite see the cathedral. It's just around the corner. Right. Sorry about that, listener. Next time, maybe. How's it been going, Nick? Uh, for the most part, pretty good. 
Uh, we started off at St George's Park. We went to Wales. We went to Paris. We got a train from Paris to Belgium, and then uh, on the train, all our camera equipment got stolen, um, which was a bit of a setback considering we're supposed to be producing a documentary for this. Oh, so you lost all the material at St George's Park in Paris? No, our cameraman is a very clever guy, so he backed up all the footage, and uh, we only lost only lost hardware. No, no, none of the absolute gold that we've uh, recorded so far. Damn. I hope you're pretty proud of yourself, light-fingered train passenger. Uh, Nick, well, I'm delighted you were able to substitute the equipment, and then you went to see the big game in the Eredivisie. Yeah, I PSV uh, on Sunday night, which was great. Um, it was uh, not the best technical game in the world, but, um, you know, there was a couple of fights which, uh, you know, really spiced things up a little bit. Um on the field, or you and Laurie after the you know long days travelling? We're getting there. We're, we're not quite. Uh, we're not quite at the violent stage just yet. But yeah, it was uh, scraps between the players on the pitch. I see. Mm. High, uh, high intensity affair. All right. Well, it was a big game. First versus second in the Eredivisie. And tell us what happened. Hello, random. Pa- there was a random Cologne man. Oh no, it's Laurie Whitwell. It's like that's no that's no random Cologne fellow. Wow, he really blends in with the locals though. I'm not sure those leather trousers were entirely necessary, but hey, you do you, Laurie. And uh, them being chaps as well was a a real flourish. uh, uh, Yes, the final score was 2-1 to PSV. Ajax were pretty poor. PSV, lots lots of uh, good stuff came through. Uh, Kelly Grappo. And yeah, they're Ruud van Nistelrooy's team now, uh, top of the Eredivisie, with, I think, one game to go before the World Cup break. Yeah, Ajax... Not saying the wheel's coming off, but a little bit of a dip there. Seventh defeat of the season. What's next for you, Nick, with Laurie? Uh, so we're very shortly getting on a train to Frankfurt where we're going to be interviewing uh, Mario Goetze about the World Cup. and Brilliant. And uh, his quite difficult last eight years. Yeah. Is he back in the squad? I should know that. He might, he might be. He might be. He's in the fifth. He's on the preliminary 55-man list. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. You're getting there by train, with train and with lorry. There you go. Uh, and there he is looking in the background again. Yeah. All right, let me ask you one more question. Nick, what's the best thing you've eaten so far? Oh, schnitzel. Schnitzel in uh, Cologne last night. It was absolutely sensational. Traditional German schnitzel. Marvellous stuff. My, bre- my breaded meat tour of Europe. Godspeed, Nick Miller. Is Mario Götze going to be in the squad, Rafa? I think so. I can't say for 100%, with 100% certainty, but I think he, he's done enough to make it, yes. Excellent. Also, in the wide world of football this weekend, Galatasaray beat Besiktas, a 2-1 victory. Big derby in Istanbul. Who got the Galatasaray goals, James Horncastle? I'm guessing it's Mario Cardi and Dries Mertens. No, it's Mario Cardi and Mario Cardi. Okay. Yes. Also this weekend, a little bit further afield, a stunning MLS Cup final. It was LAFC taking on Philadelphia Union. Gareth Bale featuring, taking this game to penalties with a goal in the eighth minute of stoppage time, sparking, well, limbs, as they say. Delier to Palacios to the byline. Palacios clipping it up. Bale! And then uh, LAFC won on penalties. Giorgio Chiellini keeps winning. Grande Giorgio. Very nice. How about a spot of Sidian next on the Totally Football Show? This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Jules has gone off to do things. Rafa's gone to bed. It is like four in the morning in Missouri. 
And it's just you, listener, me, listener. Oh, there you are. Good. Uh, Alvaro and James Horncastle, who's got a, I mean, a, where, what are you going to pick out from this weekend in Italy, James? Because it was a big one. You had two derbies, Roma Lazio, which Jules didn't enjoy too much. You had the derby of Italy, Juve Inter, big win for the old lady there. You had the Milan win, which you mentioned before with Daniel Maldini scoring. You also had the top two facing off in Bergamo. Well, I think the derby's got all of the attention, James, really, and they shouldn't have. Um, obviously, there's a lot of spectacle and choreography at those games and the Derby della Capitale kind of warm-up and the choreographies that we saw kind of lived up to the billing, even if, as Jules mentioned, the actual football did not. But the two best teams in Italy, uh, at least at the start of the season, faced off the day before in, in Bergamo on Saturday. Um, and again, I think it's just more reason to believe in Napoli um, that it's their year, really. Um, you know, we spoke about in the, the kind of Champions League section about how they keep winning big games away from home. Um, and, and this was one of them where... You know, they weren't necessarily at their best um, and it was probably un- unrealistic to expect them to be um, after playing at Anfield against Liverpool uh, and playing that match as if though they wanted to win it rather than just as a team that kind of qualified already. They were without Cavadatskelia, um, you know, who has been the revelation not just for Napoli, not just in Serie A, but in European football. And Elif Elmas, who came in for him, uh, ultimately scored the winning goal. Ozimene. Va via, mette in mezzo il pallone, Lozano, sinistro! Elmas! And Napoli had to come back from behind. Um, they were only behind for four minutes after that Ademolo Lukman penalty. Um, and I, I think when a team keeps winning without its best players, um, you know, and, and, and that's been a kind of theme throughout the season for Napoli because... They've had time. Well, they're still without Rachmani, one of their one of their best centre backs. Um, they've been without Angisa. They've obviously been without Osimen. Uh, they're now without Cavadatskelia, as we record. Um, and it's nine wins in a row. You could see when Spalletti left the pitch in Bergamo. Um, yeah, he had a quick word with I think Massimo Ambrosini, who was pitch side as a kind of uh, a pundit for Dazone. You could tell it, it, he realised that was a that was a huge win, um, just because it, I think it knocked knocked Atalanta what eight points off off Napoli, and even with Milan winning against Spezia, the the, the, the gap is six. So in Italy, they always like to talk of the uh, una fuga, uh, and uh, and it means that Napoli are running away, that they're they're they're, they're in flight. Uh, they're, so, but I, I think it's going to be curious to see what happens in this midweek round of games, James, because um, Napoli play Empoli and. Probably people will, you know, as they're scrolling on their uh, uh, scrolling through that, think, ah, that would be easy. But Empoli beat Napoli home and away last year, and uh, the kind of the thing that limited Napoli last season was was it was their results against the teams in the bottom half, uh, teams that are fighting against relegation. You know, people remember Spezia winning at uh, the Stadio Diego Maradona. Um, but so far, aside from that draw against Lecce. They've, they've been able to dispatch with those teams. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they get on in this midweek round of games. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Juve do uh, as they take on midweek. Bottom of the table, Verona. Juve, who were 2-0 winners in the Derby of Italy over Inter. Before this game, they'd been on a three-game winning streak domestically. Obviously, in the Champions League results hadn't been anything <laughs> like as good. But Max Allegri was talking about how they needed to get a big statement win against a proper big opponent. And, and this was such. How big a result do you think this is going to prove for Juventus, James? Well, it's always big to, to win the Debbie d'Italia. Um, it's, it's the biggest game for Juventus uh, and Inter, I would say. Um, you know, even though the Madonina has become a, a title decider over the last couple of years, um, yeah, the, the, the team... Inter fans really want to beat is is Juventus. So, so Juventus knowing that it's it's big. I mean, last year if you look at their results against the top four, yeah, they lost uh, to Inter at home in the league. Um, they lost in the Coppa Italia. They lost in the Super Cup to them. And yeah, their other results against Milan and Napoli were were, were dreadful as well. So, it, it felt like a step forward um, in that regard. 
Uh, however, Juventus didn't play well in the, in, in the first half. Um, yeah, they didn't have a single shot on target, you know, and they were kind of, they, were, they rode their luck at times and Allegri accepted that. I mean, Dzeko missed a kind of point-blank header. Okay, he didn't really know too much about it, but um, still missed. Uh, Lautaro had a shot that just went wide as well. And, and Juventus defended resiliently. And I think that's, rather than say, like, the last month in the league, at least, has been a turning point because I, I, I think there's still shortcomings in their, in their approach play, how they attack. But what you can say is Juventus do look like a team now, um, that they defend as one. Yeah, in the second half, uh, yeah, they got a goal, not against the run of play, but I think it came from an inter-corner. Kostic was brilliant for the Bianconeri, uh, their left winger who they signed from Frankfurt, um, who I think led Europe for assists last year. He set up Rabiot. Rabiot's been a big story, I think, uh, this season, you know, given how close he was to moving to Manchester United. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's probably played his best football. And I think the surprising thing is that Juventus may lose him on a free transfer and you look at it and think, actually, <laughs> will they regret that? Um, they would, you know, fans wouldn't uh, in last summer, um, but given how well he's played uh, this season, uh, yeah, maybe so. And then Fagioli, this has been the other story of the, of the last month, is the kids that have come through their next generation team have given a bit of uh, vim and vigour to, to Juventus when they've really needed it. Uh, but for me, the, 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 the standout performers for, for Juve were Danilo and, and Gleison Bremer. Yeah, Danilo was captaining the team. Uh, yeah, Danilo's been a really good player for them over the last two years. I, I saw you know, some people's reaction to the Brazil squad uh, and saying that, wow, it's really exciting, but look at the fullbacks. Uh, there's a 40-year-old Dani Alves going, and then there's Danilo. Danilo in the last two years has emerged as a real leader at Juventus, who's someone that Andre Pirlo really value because he can play in multiple positions. He's just really intelligent. James, they, they don't even overlap. They, they don't even overlap for Brazil. This is very mm. remarkable. They stay in the midfield. They, the wingers do all the work in the, in the wings. So yeah. That version of Danilo is more than sufficient for Tite. A Danilo yeah. that only defends. Um, and, and Bremer, who you know, kind of got the last centre-back slot in the squad, you know, Bremer is the City Air Defender of the Year. Uh, has just come back from injury and both of them were, were brilliant. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Inter, James, because they, mm. you know, they've come out of crisis and, and yet they've lost a, a really big game again, you know, after losing the derby to Milan, losing to, to Lazio, um, losing to Roma. Yeah, it's the fifth defeat of the season in the league. Um, that's, yeah, that's a lot, uh, really. Uh, Juventus have leapfrogged them in the league. Um, and again, sort of question marks about the team's attitude, which yeah, they, they kind of sorted out over the last month. You saw kind of Barella at times throwing his hands up in the air, getting frustrated. They, they go behind. They think they shouldn't be behind. They don't react. Uh, Inzaghi's substitutions make things worse. So in, in that regard, you know, I, yeah, I think Gazetta were reporting this morning that there's, there's, there's been a kind of quite a lengthy discussion between Inzaghi and uh, the, the executives at the club um, that you know, they need to snap out of some of these these defeats because as, as good as Inter have been over the last month, if you keep losing the big games, mm. you're not going to be you're not going to be a title contender. Indeed not. They're lying seventh currently. Juve have moved past them into fifth place. They are ten off the top, Juve, but they're only two points behind Lazio who are in fourth place, and that's who they're going to be facing next Sunday night in the final game before the break for the World Cup. And that's something that uh, that's a match that you and I will be covering on Golazzo Live, if you're curious to see how that goes, in the Maurizio Sarri derby. Oof. Well, lots of exciting stories around Europe this weekend, and indeed so far this season, but none have been bigger than the extraordinary feats of Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League. The Athletic have had two people following the side from Ukraine closely through their exploits. And uh, next up, we're going to be hearing from uh, one of them, Joey Durso, about uh, the podcast series that he and Adam Crofton have put together, Away From Home. I just wanted to say right now the energy and the spirit that has to be so strong in this changing room that if a guy walks in with a light bulb, 
it will f***ing burst. Today I don't want to hear that someone lost a battle, didn't run enough or anything else. So you come out and play like men. Crikey, that's quite an introduction. Joey Durso joins us now. Joey, what, what were we just listening to? Yes, yeah, so that was the captain of Shakhtar Donetsk psyching up his team uh, before they take on the... RB Leipzig, Real Madrid and Celtic in the Champions League. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the very exciting football in this group has come across the backdrop of the war in Ukraine and the really extraordinary story of Shakhtar that me and Adam have been, Adam Crafton, friend of this podcast, have been telling around Europe over the last few weeks. Well, of all the remarkable things that have happened in football this season, nothing comes close to Shakhtar and their exploits. And this is something that the podcast touched on. It's not just about what's happened since the Russian invasion in February. This is a story that goes way, way back. Yeah. So Shakhtar, I mean, it's an extraordinary story. In 2009, they built this new Donbass arena in Donetsk in the east of Ukraine. They then hosted Euro 2012, I think the semi-final. Um, and this was, you know, a, the, a new kind of centre of European football, as it were. And then two years later, there was an invasion of eastern Ukraine and Crimea. Um, so they stopped using the Donbass arena. It was damaged. So they moved to Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, where they'd been playing for eight years. And then in February, there's this full-scale invasion of Russia. And now Shakhtar play uh, their Champions League game in Poland. Um, so yeah, it, it's incredible what's happened to them. And um, many of the foreign players just left, very understandably, when it all kicked off. So it's a group of Ukrainian, very green players who haven't really played on this stage before, who really went toe-to-toe with some of the best players in Europe. There is a player that stands out to me. I mean, Lasina Traore. He could have departed, but uh, instead he decided to stay in the club out of gratitude for how well he, they treated him because he was getting physio rehabilitation from the club as well. And he felt that he had an emotional attachment to Shakhtar as well. That was incredible, in my opinion, and one of the stories of the season too. Where have they been living in between games? The, the match has been played in Warsaw, but in the meantime? Well, kind of on a, on a bus. I mean, they've been playing... Uh, home league games in often in Ukraine in in the west of Ukraine. So they they've been playing against you know Dynamo Kiev and other top Ukrainian teams. Somehow this league is going on, but it means they're just constantly moving from you know the west of Ukraine to Warsaw to Madrid to Glasgow, and they spent these sort of last ten weeks just constantly moving. And then their family might be with them. You know we've spoken to players whose one player in particular whose whose father-in-law was killed. Um, leading up to one of the fixtures. And uh, we spoke to a woman who was the sister of a former Shakhtar trialist who, who was killed. So there's this just constant backdrop between the, the, the joy of football and the, and, the, and the misery of war. Joey, you were at the, the game against Real Madrid at, at Warsaw, which must have been a pretty extraordinary experience. I was. It was amazing. Um, it, it was 1-1. So Shakhtar played really well. I mean, you wouldn't guess that it was this kind of ragtag bunch of young Ukrainians and the European champions. Um, Shakhtar were brilliant. Real Madrid had an off day and Shakhtar were frankly the better team. They scored just after half time and it looked like they had done this amazing thing until Antonio Rudiger in the 95th minute um, headed an equaliser, which was a bit of a, a bit of a shame. But um, the, the 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 remarkable thing for me, um, something happened which I've never witnessed at a football match, having attended many football matches in my life. Um, it was almost a neutral match, right? It was happening in Poland. It's a very long way from Donetsk, a very long way from Kiev. Um, most of the audience were probably sort of soft Real Madrid fans who were Polish. Um, they kind of wanted to see the stars of Madrid. There were some hardcore Madrid fans or people who travelled from Spain. There were some Shakhtar fans. There were lots of kind of locals who sort of vaguely supported Shakhtar, but didn't really know any of the players. You know, it's equivalent of in London supporting a team from, I don't know, Marseille or Milan or, you know, it's a very long way. And the crowd began to shift. The crowd's support began to shift from Madrid to Shakhtar. And at the beginning, they were just sort of cheering the Madrid players they'd heard of, you know, Karim Benzema or whoever else. And by the end, they were sort of cheering Shakhtar, which was just amazing to watch. And, you know, Poland has this great affinity with Ukraine um, and is a big supporter of the war. And as Warsaw has taken many Ukrainian refugees. So it was this, it's a cliche, but these events off the pitch were just really tangible on the pitch. Well, it's an amazing story, Joe. Hopefully it's going to continue from Shakhtar's point of view. They're up against Ren in the uh, Europa League playoffs. Yes, so Shakhtar won their first game 4-1, they drew 3, but sadly they just sort of ran out, ran out of puff and were hammered at home by Leipzig, so didn't make the second Champions League spot. But they're playing in the Europa League, they've got a tie against Rennes that seems you know, winnable. So yeah, let's see. In the meantime, just as a journalist, to be part of this story and to talk to these people and 
be part of the experiences they were going through. It must have been quite an, a remarkable time for you. Yeah, it was really moving. These people whose life was was completely upended. I mean, and I, I, I've been to Kiev about seven years ago and it was, you know, it has this constant backdrop of war, but it's a very, you know, it's, it's not unlike other European cities you might go to and these people you know, had plenty of money and uh, to live a relatively comfortable life. And then just suddenly one day, everything, everything changes. Um, and you're uprooted and you're living in a place like, you know, Glasgow or Warsaw, where you've never been. It was incredible. And we're really grateful to these people for, for telling those stories. And normally footballers, they talk about their careers. Uh, if you talk to them, they are always thinking about the future, next contract, where can I go, will I stay? What do Shakhtar players talk about? Do they talk about these subjects or do they just, uh, do they have their minds just focus on what's happening? Well, yeah, it, it, it's hard to ever escape that. And the day in Warsaw, the game against Real Madrid was the day after Kiev came under attack for the first time since the beginning of the war which kind of dominated the press conference the next day and all the people in the hotel, it was all they could talk about. Um, Adam was actually meant to get a train to Kiev that day and then um, had to cancel last minute. I mean, it's impossible to escape, frankly, but I was in the away end at Celtic and these people who have had a horrendous last few months who, you know, I spoke to one boy whose father was on the front line. There were other people who had known people who had died and football provided a release from that for two hours. It's what... um, Alexander Zubkov told me, who scored twice against Real Madrid. Um, not many people have managed that. And he said, you know, this is the one time in my week that I can just focus on something else. So, you know, while football might seem as this sort of trivial thing, it, it, it really helps people, I think, to, to feel a bit of joy, a bit of, you know, physical exhaustion, a bit of just something to get behind, which isn't politics, war, Putin's latest speech. Well, indeed. Uh, the incredible Shakhtar Donetsk, their story beautifully told in this podcast series, Away From Home with Adam and Joey. And that's available now uh, through all good podcast outlets. Joey, thank you so much for for uh, for being with us today. Are you going to be continuing? Will you and Adam be you know, following Shakhtar through the rest of the season? We haven't quite decided yet, but we'll certainly be watching closely. And we've got all these great contacts now with, you know, everyone in the team from the sporting director down. So we'll certainly carry on talking to them. And yeah, I guess watch this space. I'm sure there'll be more Shakhtar content of some form to come. Well, there you go, listener. Check that out. That's the end of today's Totally Football show, though. Many thanks for you being with us, Salvador Romeo, James Horncastle, Julian Laurent, Raphael Honigstein... Producer Charlie, a new listener. There'll be another of these next Tuesday. We return Thursday talking about stuff, football stuff. Perhaps you'll be with us. And now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.